Hey, this is Matthew Peterson. We're going to talk about the good stuff today. Uh, a little doing and thinking action for you, all related to media and its power. Um, first is, uh, I, I just want to lay out what I think is probably the the way to fly for a nonprofit that would just maximize uh, you know educational media across the right uh, based Prager U, as I call it. Um, inventive idea. We have the teams and the people here. I just wanted to lay it out for you so you know what we're doing. And also if you uh, have any thoughts and want to help, um, you know, plug and play. It's ready to go. Uh, we're moving forward on it. So contact me. Second, we are going to spend, uh, you're going to really get a taste. I mean, really, you should have to pay for this. You really should. Uh, but uh, are you going to get a taste of, a, of almost what a lecture would be like if I really drilled into it uh, on uh, some of the media theory stuff? going back to 2016 and just looking at Trump's rise and pulling out some kind of operational principles and ways to think about how modern mass media uh, works. Uh, it's the kind of thing that I, I, I'm doing because people seem to find it interesting. You know, let me know. Let me know. Uh, it's good stuff. And I hope you enjoy it. Let's get on with this show, though. We got a lot to cover. Let's do it. So I want to lead off today talking about uh, American Firebrand 2.0 um, and throw this out there. If you're interested, uh, you have ideas, thoughts, let me know. You want to help do this. So as some of you know, we started with a super PAC. Uh, it's kind of funny that we started with that because we really just we wanted to do messaging and media that uh, slap Republicans and, and Democrats around and demonstrate what you could do if you were inventive and quick on your feet. Thinking about, you know, experimenting with is basically a laboratory for different messages uh, on the right with video. And we created the war with Tom Klingenstein, which made quite a splash. And I don't know, it's a, it was a while ago when I checked, but over a million people have, have seen the war, which is, you know, just an interview with an old guy, but an old guy who's brilliant, um, friend and, and colleague at Claremont. He was the chairman of the board at Claremont, is the chairman of the board. And, you know, that series went really well. And I think we pushed the dial forward in terms of quality production. And Tom's own words are, are, are brilliant and, you know, basically our message, cutting edge on the right. And we experimented throughout. Uh, you know, Steve Bannon said, uh, you know, one of the best ads he'd seen was our ad for J.D. Vance and the boys, uh, not your father's Republican Party, uh, after he won the primary. Um, you know, no, very little marketing. We're just putting them out there online. Uh, we did some, a lot of them about the kind of rhetoric the left uses, the people will die video uh, we did about how the left says people will die over and over again. Um, you know, Dan Bongino, unsolicited, um, uh, picked up that uh, video and, and talked to, uh, and I'm sorry, Dan Bongino, it was Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh, the Daily Wire, picked up that people will die video and said, look, this is exactly what they're doing. It's moral blackmail and appreciated what we had done, uh, which was proof of concept, right? Because um, we didn't contact him about it or anything. And, uh, and then uh, Dan, Dan Bongino picked up our video uh, about Martha's Vineyard, leaning into it with I think, the best rhetoric out there and saying, they did it exactly right. They got rid of these people. It was a, it was an easy four step plan. Uh, so you can see these videos at AmericanFirebrand.com. Uh, they're on YouTube. Uh, we don't they kind of sit there. We don't promote them on YouTube. But you can go to YouTube and see uh, Paige uh, Paige Riley's show. Um, she's done for a while. She's incredible interviews now with American Firebrand. Used to work at the White House. Um, 
you know, as a young staffer who is uh, incredibly based and, and on the cutting edge of this, done an incredible job with the messaging for this. Uh, we have Logan now um, who's doing social media at American Firebrand uh, on Twitter. I think that's AM Firebrand. Is that right? Uh, Vince, our producer Vince right here also uh, helps us with this. Uh, Gabe making the video. I mean, we have an incredible team inside. And then I have a lot of friends, um, e either Hollywood or advertising, who, uh, you know, outside spaces who I could call on that I haven't even called on yet. And other people as well, just to kind of, you know, move the, move the ball forward. So I think experiment successful uh, in many ways. We did a lot of interesting stuff. And then we collaborated with, uh, we created a C4 um, Firebrand Action and another kind of legal organization to do these kinds of things. And we piled up with, uh, with Heritage Action and we did two ads uh, so far. We did two messages to the people um, advocating for them to call up. Uh, their their elected officials in certain states and you know give them a piece of their mind about uh, immigration and terrible things going on those were inc incredible ads very good very well received and uh, what I want to talk about now is is kind of always been near and dear to me um, and something that I want to uh, develop and that is a C3 you know a nonprofit that creates video for various entities on the right. I mean, basically what we've done is we have an internal team that's very good and practiced, and we have a, uh, you know, a network of people who are collaborators who could work in media uh, on this. And what I want to do, my, my idea here is um, let's create a nonprofit. You know, we need sufficient funding, but this is going to the, the deal. You know, the money's going to the deal. And it'd be the highest impact money you could imagine for a nonprofit because what we will do is with the Firebrand production team, start creating the educational videos that we all know are needed now. I mean, I could jokingly call it based PragerU. Um, I don't mean to disparage PragerU any, but I mean, it's they, they set the model. But it would be going into spaces where you know, no one is talking about, like, why did things change about immigration? We used to think this was the case, and now we think this. It'd almost be donor education as well, but you'd let a lot of young, smart people who are kind of leading, you know, messaging and also leading the intellectual side of the movement um, and, and the new right, whatever you want to call it, and just put this stuff out there. I mean, look, it's, there's, it's a realigning time. So a lot of the themes can be the same, but just the, the old rhetoric and the old way of thinking and the old coalitions are all falling apart. So I see a need for a nonprofit that partners with organizations that will distribute the content, is judicious about what topics it takes on and how, and it, it basically creates a star system for nerds, right, or activists, where we highlight people doing interesting things. Some of it's like a how-to practical. Some of it's intellectual as in, you know, some of it's like how do I um, actually increase um, participation in local politics in a way that makes sense by explaining to people how important these things are and how do they work, right? Um, you could do something on a school board, right, uh, that is trying to change over its leadership to resolve some of the problems that parents feel are in that school. And you could you could follow that and make a how-to video about it, right? You could take a um, more intellectual issue like, well, what, why is our form of government in question? And, you know, what is Caesarism? Why are people talking about it, for instance? And give, we could get some great, you know, 
at all these people, right? We can get great historians, great intellectuals um, to, um, to, to lay it out in a way that's understandable and then have a crack media team to produce the content. And I could see going to a number of entities that already exist um, and saying, look, we'll co-brand with you. We like your expert on you know, this topic and you'll have this video series. Because for a lot of organizations, whether they're for-profit or non-profit that are right-leaning, uh, you know, video is a tall order. We just don't have that ecosystem yet and it's expensive and it's hard to do well. So we already have a brand that, you know, can both do well messaging on the edge and also has produced uh, some beautiful stuff with the war and, and, and elsewhere. So I just think, I mean, I think this is needed and I'm trying to think about how to maximize the impact, right, of having a media team and my own editorial vision and knowing these people, like we could put them together. Imagine, you know, if you had the Claremont Institute uh, you know, Ryan over there, he can't just do this out of the blue. He would need a you know budget for it. And they don't have anyone uh, to make video right now. And it's not really their mission. But, you know, we're friends. I could see easily, you know, we've talked to him about this before, going to him or going uh, and with Claremont's own intellectual stars, all of our friends and colleagues, and choosing some topics that are uh, you know, relevant, important, but they're also going to be evergreen and stick around. And then we make a bunch of videos uh, for Claremont. And I mean, I, I, it's not even my own team who would who would who would make some of these. There's other people we know who would be very interested in just pro professional level producing this content. And I think that the, the the vehicle for it really should be a nonprofit because we'd sort of be an add on to all these organizations. But then the, the goal would be, you know, we're not just making stuff and throwing it online. We're making professional quality stuff that, that has our label on it, right? But is co-branded with the partner institution. So everyone knows this is credentialed by us, both in terms of content and in terms of quality, uh, but it's also this other organizations and they can use it. Um, so so this, this is the way to me to just, you know, to, to really, really have an impact across the entire country on a variety of issues where, uh, and the left, by the way, does this all the time. I mean, all the time. They spend, they don't do anything unless they, they spend money on media because they're not idiots and they know that you have to actually move the dial. Don't even be started. Um, but, but they do this all the time. We could, I, I mean, I could do this tomorrow with the funding. Um, you know, there's a, there would be some, you know, staffing that we'd have to figure out the right people. We already have people in mind, but we put some parts together and then it'd be off to the races with us making content that would move the dial that we'd have partner organizations, you know, pushing out. So they're interested to push out that they're going to, they're going to, uh, you know, they're going to, they're going to have it to use it for themselves. And then uh, we have a library of content that we start to build, right? That's labeled firebrand. Uh, or whatever the name of the C3 is. And you, all of a sudden you got, you know, you got this, in, this, this library of stuff that's all relevant, that's all, you know, curated, that you know is going to be good, that creates a brand that, you know, has had an impact that's proven. Uh, and that body of content then becomes a library that people are just going to go to over time and it can be dispersed and used, you know, in various networks or whatever. So this is a, uh, this is, I think, this the seed of this though being a nonprofit that just labs on. I mean, what if, for instance, um, uh, I don't know if uh, they have any desire to do, uh, you know, non-comedy sketch videos. They they should they should do more comedy sketch videos. I love the Babylon Bee and what they're doing, but you could see like going to you know Seth had an interest about that. Didn't want to make the stuff themselves, but wanted to promote something that we were uh, aligned with. Um, you know, I could see us this organization helping them. Um, 
because it's a risk. Uh, a lot of these places are small. Some of them are making money, but it, it's not a huge amount. And this is like the jumpstart mechanism that has a direct impact eyeballs to eyeballs. Uh, and so, so think about, um, it, it, think about this. I mean, the, the Federalist as well. I mean, our friends over there, I know they, they certainly, I'm sure have a desire to do more video, but Again, they're busy uh, growing in various ways, and video is costly and expensive. Uh, and uh, you know they got their hands full, and they're doing a great job. But but they're not gonna, I think, all of a sudden have a, like a video channel anytime soon. Uh, but what what imagine if there's an organization that comes in and says, "Hey, we're gonna do a series that sort of evergreen, sits around, has an impact uh, on this topic with your people." And, you know, our brand will be on it as kind of the production company, uh, and we might keep it in our library as well, but it's really promoted by you. You, you, you go out there and use it. Um, similarly with other think tanks um, and other media orgs, um, this is what, uh, you know, this is kind of like an NPR play uh, on, the, on the left, or uh, they have organizations that do this, you know, all the time. Um, but I, I see the need for it because, you know, really right now, people, when there is a relevant message and people who get it start saying these things, this would be accelerating that because on the big networks, right, uh, there's very few people who are actually um, in the moment, have their finger on the pulse and are just doing the deal, right? I mean, Tucker Carlson is rare. Um, everyone else is, is, most people are trying to catch up. It's kind of a hodgepodge of stuff. And most of the content is not evergreen, right? It's just here today, gone tomorrow. Where are the definitive new arguments that we should be thinking about? What are the, you know, the, the, the topics that everyone's talking about, but there needs to be just a library of information and content. It has to be video, otherwise no one reads anymore. But even if the video is about what to read, right? I mean, that would be valuable because people would watch that and then some of those people would go read. Um, so there's a lot that I think could be done uh, relatively quickly that would, um, you know, you would, we would track the numbers that would have an impact and just the right doesn't do. Uh, this wouldn't be here today, gone tomorrow content. It'd be stuff, it'd be like, you know, mini, uh, mini lecture series, but done in a, in a professional way that catches the eye. And, uh, you, you know, you'd have content that just, that just matters. I mean, you know, th like the segment I did, the little, the little thing I did about Caesarism, just by pulling out a microphone at an event I went to, I, I, I need to do that more often because no one else is having those discussions, right? We should have an entire show doing those discussions. Um, this is something that uh, Amanda Milius has been uh, on about, uh, you know, pushing for a while. I mean, you know, her company could do this tomorrow. Like we could, we could imagine we just have like an old school cable news show, basically, you know, back when in the stone age, uh, when they used to complain about those shows being dumb. But now imagine you have people on the right debating interesting things. And it's not just a podcast. It's like, this is a show that involves more over time. That kind of content is absolutely needed. And it could be done in a variety of ways and it could be done tomorrow. I have all the pieces on the table. The question is what organizationally can jumpstart this and how do we get started? I think part of it should be a, uh, a nonprofit uh, that, that partners with all these uh, organizations that are right-leaning and we select the stars we like, right? But we start taking this network of smart people who can communicate and getting them out there explaining 
what's going on and how people should think about these things that are going on and, and giving sort of evergreen, you know, mini series lectures on various topics that just make the argument and are educational and informative. That's how, you know, uh, Ben Shapiro videos on YouTube started. That's how Daily Wire started. That's how, uh, you know, PragerU is an incredible juggernaut. Um, you know, they just over the years has done so much good. And this is a little different model and a, and a different thing. Um, but it's the kind of thing that uh, is just necessary. And so anyway, I wanted to make my pitch just on the cast uh, to you guys uh, on the show, um, just to lay it out there, because it's something that's it's like in the file. You know, it's not like the first thing uh, that I'm working on, or the, the second or third thing, but it's like right there. And it's been there all the time. And I've gotten the super pack and we got the C4. But the next step is just the C3. We take that media team we plug it in with some people who consult project per project and we just go off to the races. Um, and I, I mean, I, when I look at what people are giving money to today uh, and the impact it has, I mean, I, and I know everyone's looking to have that impact. This to me is just obvious. Like I know the people, we have the parts, let's do it. Uh, so if you know anyone, uh, especially who's, if you're talent, uh, that's fine too. You know, come on, uh, come on and knock on the door. Um, but if, especially if you know uh, or you are someone who's interested in potentially funding that or you know people who would be, um, let me know because, um, you know, this is something where I think the dollars go right into stuff that you can measure the impact, you can see it, and uh, it could lead to a, a, a world of good. And, it, and it's, just, it's just needed because none of these organizations, remember, video is expensive, everyone thinks they can do it, it's really hard. Uh, you, 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 know, you, and you need, you need talented people. Depends on your budget, right? Uh, on who would do what, but there, but we have the talented people, and people piss away money on this all the time, and we have the 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 brand where we're gonna, I'm gonna guarantee you're gonna get good stuff out of it, and then you know we go around and we just make stuff for people for organizations. I mean, to go to Claremont and make like Claremont Presents shows, I could find other distribution you know networks for that, uh, right? Um, and this is, again, this is more of a, a nonprofit thing though, uh, at least in the beginning, because it's not, it's, it's not the kind of thing anyone has a budget for, and it's not the kind of thing that most people are gonna you know, experiment on, um, but it's the kind of stuff that sticks around like the PragerU stuff and really has an impact. And I mean, the stuff that we make uh, in our laboratory over the last two years, I mean, you know, we have enormous engagement. It's hilarious to me uh, to see our account as opposed to others. Our engagement is through the roof. Why? Because uh, this team knows what it's doing and, it, and when it's being edgy and out there, it's being edgy and out there. And when we want to do something fancy, we do something fancy. Mm, this coffee is delicious. Um, so uh, anyway, that's my, that's my, it's not even a pitch. That's just, I'm just laying out like, hey, that's one of the things I'm working on. I want you to know about it. If you have any ideas about this, by the way, you know, I'm open. Um, this is what I've come to after a few years of banging around uh, and thinking about, you know, the different parts on the table, the chess pieces on the national board. I think this is something that needs to be done. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm open uh, as, to, uh, as to other ideas. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of other things I'm working on. You never know uh, where it can go. It's the hub of a new commercial cultural movement, and it's exciting. So Firebrand 2.0, uh, the C3, the base PragerU. <laughs> uh, again, no, it's PragerU, PragerU. It's like a compliment to them. Um, but it's it's sort of like this uh, this organization that comes in, makes the stuff, but but it's branded in a certain way where it all fits together in the universe and really just moves the ball forward and kicks ass. I mean, this is what we need. Um, 
you know, I've talked to uh, Charlie Kirk about this as well. Uh, you know, I, I mean, everyone needs and wants this in some way. Some organizations will uh, will end up doing it themselves, and that's great. Uh, but uh, but I really want to uh, you know help connect the dots here, and and we we have again all the pieces. We just got to put them together the right way, and I think the right way for this side of it is a, a nonprofit. Um, that uh, that really just adds value and has immediate impact. That's one of the things I'm working on, uh, and I hope that you know someone interested. I would love to set this thing up to run itself with the right people and uh, give it some guidance and watch it fly. Okay, so I want to go into, uh, I'll give you a little insight into some of the things I'm working on and I have uh, going on here, um, but um, I want to go into uh, some of the thought stuff. And I, so I wrote these, I wrote a few articles on Medium um, and I thought, well, would this be embarrassing to go back to? Uh, kind of, but not really. Uh, they're actually pretty good. Um, but this is me. Uh, I don't know why. I did, I did this because I thought nowhere would publish this, but I just need to put this out there. Um, and it came from both doing and thinking. Um, it came from my own experience, you know, starting out just going online with uh, sued sued blogs, and and then ended up, uh, you know, getting paid to do that. Um, this is like 20 years ago, um, and just moved on from there behind the scenes in the media landscape. And I, I, um, and then I also had occasion to to think about it and read about it a little bit. And so I wanted to go back to um, three reasons Trump won the media, something I wrote uh, a while back. And it was a series. I didn't finish the series because someone else wanted me to write up the article in a, you know, another journal, so mission accomplished. But um, I want to go back to it because there's some basics here that are like medium level of depth that are helpful, I think, to most people when they think about mass media. Uh, we can go into, you know, the, the, the particulars of digital, what's going on in, in a deeper way, but there's some kind of like, not surface level, like, you know, medium level stuff that that's helpful that's been written over the last couple of years. It's been helpful to me. So I want to go into it anyway. So one of the things that happened is that uh, um, with Trump was that informed and correct opinion was at the time, this is 2016, that he's going to, I wrote this right before he accepted the nomination. He won because, in part, because he received wildly disproportionate media coverage throughout the Republican primary season, and that is absolutely correct. Um, you know, in, informed and correct opinion at the time had it that the news media disproportionately covered Trump in large part because as old business models were decaying, they still are, desperate corporations shamelessly sought the profit that came along with Trump-induced ratings to relieve their financial pressures. And of course, Trump himself was well aware of this and still is, and rightly calls them out. Like, you needed me to make money. Like, I saved you CNN during this time. So... Um, if you if you look at the uh, there's a chart that my buddy Luke Thompson did uh, smart guy uh, he's working on the the Vance uh, pack um, it's last I checked uh, we have to talk again and debrief uh, they won good job Luke uh, but major network share of Republican mentions during the 2016 cycle is the title of the chart so just showing um, you know which candidate was mentioned most 
uh, during the primary season. And as you may imagine, in the beginning, uh, Jeb Bush is leading, and then it just sort of slopes down. Uh, and uh, I think the next highest was Cruz in the beginning. It slopes down. It comes up a little bit at the end. But what you see is uh, between April and, and J- July 2015, is a uh, steep climb for Trump and it never goes away and it just goes up and up and up and up and up. So that's informed opinion, right? Um, That uh, he won because he got the coverage. He got the coverage because they needed the ratings and he was good for ratings. But that's surface level stuff. Uh, That's, you know, I I read an article in the Wall Street Journal or whatever. um, uh, And it made me feel smart because it gave me this information. And it's true and it's interesting. But but I want to go into... um, uh, a deeper aspect to this that can be described in a nefarious way or can be described in just as like basic PR, how media works kind of way. Here is one of the best writers on the operational principles of modern mass media describing a certain infamous, uh, infamous American politician as, quote, a natural genius at creating reportable happenings that had an interestingly ambiguous relation to underlying reality. He had a diabolical fascination and an almost hypnotic power over news-hungry reporters. They were somehow reluctantly grateful to him for turning out their product. They stood astonished that he could make so much news from such meager raw material. Many hated him. All helped him. He and the newsmen both thrived on the same synthetic commodity. His political fortunes were promoted almost as much by newsmen who were considered uh, who considered themselves his enemies as those as by those few who were his friends. Everyone promoted him, is what he's saying. Without the active help of all of them, he could never have created the pseudo-events which brought him notoriety and power. Newspaper editors who self-righteously attacked his, quote, collaborators, collaborators, unquote, themselves proved worse than powerless to cut him down to size. Even while they attacked him on the editorial page inside, they were building him up in front page headlines. Newspaper men were his most potent allies, for they were his co-manufacturers of pseudo-events. They were caught in their own web. Honest newsmen and the unscrupulous politician were in separate branches of the same business. Now, that was, uh, what, over 60 years ago, a historian Daniel Borston writing about Senator Joe McCarthy, who the left hated because he was a communist scaremonger, in the first chapter of The Image, a book that I used to assign to people interested in the workings of modern media. And I'm not saying that, if you look at, you know, you see the cover of Time, there's a picture of it, 1951, Demagogue McCarthy, does he deserve well of the Republic? And it's a picture of McCarthy. And of course, it's, you know, they're demonizing him, but he's also on the cover of Time. So Time magazine, you know, denounced him as a demagogue, did it with his face on the cover and helped maintain his national prominence. Now, I'm not suggesting that Donald Trump is Joe McCarthy or even that Donald Trump is, I'm saying he's a genius for the way in which he created pseudo events. I don't mean it in a negative way at all. And also the business model of 1950s news media was not that of, you know, the 21st, even in 2016. But, you know, what Borston was saying is, is, is there's a lot of truth to it, right? There's a symbiotic relationship often um, between, um, you know, even the bad guy, quote unquote, and this is certainly the case with Trump, perhaps more so than anyone else. Um, here, his own bravado is right. I mean, who else has made more money for these failing networks than Donald Trump as the bad guy? It drove ratings for years. And so, if you don't believe me, right, remember that 
uh, Leslie Moonves, the executive chairman and CEO of C CBS, cheered him on for the sake of increased profit. Uh, they leaked this uh, confer conference sponsored by Morgan Stanley, uh, was made public. And he was saying, it may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. And he laughed and he said, the money is rolling in. <laughs> I mean, that's what the executive chairman and CEO of CBS said, right? This is how things actually work. So, you know, Trump, Trump, uh, The Intercept reported, uh, you know, not a right-leaning publication. In December of 20, 2015, I think, Trump in particular has formed a symbiotic relationship with the media. Although he hasn't paid for many ads yet, <laughs> my commentary, he didn't have to, the real estate's mogul's bombastic comments and hateful rhetoric have proved provided record-shattering ratings for news networks, which in turn have provided nonstop coverage for his campaign. So, uh, you know, the primary debates have subsided, but the nonstop coverage never stopped, and we still have it today. Um, these people complained about it. In the New York Times, uh, um, Jim, Jim Rutenberg, he said, he said he called it the mutual dependence of Donald Trump and the news media, eventually declaring that the Republican horse race is over and journalism lost. Uh, the Washington Post, they were condemning themselves for this in the past. You know, they, they've stopped doing that. Why is Donald Trump surging? Blame the media. Uh, and, uh, you know, Washington Post also had a deep dive into the news media's role in the rise of Donald Trump. They could not help themselves. They could not help themselves. So it was billions of dollars in free coverage. Um, you know, his share of mentions uh, versus like what he got in the polls, it was billions of dollars. And it was sort of the death rattle of old school TV news, I think. Not in the sense that um, they were being biased towards Trump. It just showed their desperation, right? Um, and, and it was kind of, kind of the end, right? It, that was ideological as well, uh, but it was it was it was over. It was over for any kind of old school you know news paradigm. So um, this is this is the way he is. And and the the Barack Obama uh, to the press uh, on Donald Trump 2016 White House Correspondents Dinner. He said, "I hope you are all proud of yourselves. The guy wanted to give his hotel business a boost, and now we are praying that Cleveland makes it through July." Yeah, typical. Uh, unsurpassed arrogance. Um, but but you know, what is he doing? He's saying you guys made him who he is. So one of the stories, just like with Joe McCarthy, that the, the media began to tell about Donald Trump was the all too true story of how it can't stop running stories about Trump. And, and, and Borston is interesting because he, I think he shows why. He shows why. Mm. And it's, it's a dynamic that's embedded in kind of the operational structure of, of modern mass media itself. When we say mass media, I mean an ever-increasing ever increasing means of communicating to ever-increasing numbers of people increasingly quickly and continuously since the Industrial Revolution began. Like since you, the telegraph started sending messages, since electricity allowed us to do this. Uh, so from the use of the telegraph and radio to Twitter, live streaming video, there's some profound changes that occurred when things went digital. But uh, what we're talking about with mass media is just communicating to lots of people all at once, and they can communicate with each other all at once. And so this, this rise of mass media over the last century 
has basically created a new set of operational principles of power for American and civic cultural life. Um, this is behind a lot of what I just do do uh, behind the scenes. This is why I think it's so important. And I, I just don't understand why people don't see this. Um, you know, if you're in a de democratic form of government, any kind of uh, any form of government has to worry about this. It's profoundly important. In a democratic form of government, like it's direct to the people, right? Uh, Lincoln said, you mold the minds of the people, you have more power than those who make the laws because you mold the minds of the people who will allow the laws to be made. So you basically dictate what the framework of uh, the Overton window with a framework of what's acceptable if you mold the minds of the people through media. Uh, the other way you do it is through education, as I said in a previous sh show. So here's what, what, what really bothers me and what I want to get you thinking about today is that the operational principles of power, the levers, right, that you use to influence American civic and cultural life. And now you could say maybe it's over, it's done, we failed. Um, but but most people were never taught these things. We're ignorant of them. They, we don't even treat it as if it's a kind of body of knowledge that you could study. Sure, there's like media theorists and whatever, but they're usually pretty lame. Uh, they're not like uh, Marshall McLuhan, who was who had real depth and education that, that he brought to bear to uh, to the topic. And, and the people who have like the depth of Western education, the great booksies and whatever, uh, you know, they that they that just don't take it seriously and don't study it enough. So. So we, we, we haven't been systematically taught anything about how to deal with the power of the mass media that has changed the form of government in many ways. At least it's changed the operational principles of power in politics and culture. And so we, we, and you say, well, okay, well, prove that to me. Well, one of the pieces of evidence I'd give you is uh, you, we, we reveal the depths of our ignorance when we assume that because technologically advances so quickly, there could not possibly be operational principles of rhetoric that extend from the telegraph to Twitter, when in fact there are marked similarities between the two. Uh, also differences, but there are similarities. And, and we, we reveal the depth of our, our ignorance when we act as if you know the Kardashians are something new. Um, but when they're an old phenomenon that, that it was explained in the early 60s by Borston because he was looking to his past and this happening before. Uh, did you hear me? Like the Kardashians can be explained by what Borston said in the book, The Image in the early 60s. And he explained that by looking to his past. It's, it's been over a century, folks. Like it's been a over a century of, of this uh, mass media coming onto the scene where all of a sudden we can all see into the same crystal ball. We all have, you know, the same channels. And then, you know, then digital explodes that into something different. I mean, it, we're not thinking about it in any kind of serious, rigorous way. Uh, so our republic, you know, that we're, we supposedly have still depends upon the ability of a citizen, citizenry to deliberate as a people about what ought to be done. And to the extent you are not effectively able to evaluate or participate in modern rhetoric or the art of persuasion with modern media, uh, to the extent you don't even know how, the, what the means and methods are, how it works, you cease to be free. You know, uh, w when we examine modern media, we're looking at modern rhetoric. This is the workings of, of modern media equal the workings of modern rhetoric. And rhetoric is the art of persuasion. So, so these tools of human communication, they're, they're new means of practicing old, the old art of rhetoric, same problems apply for good or ill, but we don't bother to teach ourselves the traditional liberal art of persuasion. We don't even know what rhetoric means as a liberal art. You don't know what the trivium is, right? The logic. Rhetoric? No. Does it ring the bell? No. I mean, so, some of you maybe, but for a lot of people, 
you know, the, the, most people, we were not taught that in a systematic way. Uh, so we're woefully unprepared to, to analyze uh, everyone around us, all the noise around us, which is there to influence you. I mean, every day, all day, people are trying to influence what you think, but of course, you're not influenced by anything. Uh, you just are a completely objective observer, a cold, rational analyst of everything. And, and uh, that, that's the way we're taught to think, which is a great lie if you want to control people. Uh, to deny that uh, you know these things have any influence is to uh, and to not see them. You're the fish in water again, right? And how do you get out of the water? Well, you should be taught how these things work, and you just haven't been. So, in in truth, I mean, the expert use of of mass media is is really the the, the silent ring of Gyges, if you want to go back to Plato or or or, or Sauron, if you prefer Lord of the Rings. Um, it, it's the temptation to use it over the last hundred years um, has changed, say, the very nature of the presidency itself. I mean, the modern rhetorical presidency, the president as the guy who speaks from the bully pulpit, that wasn't the case in the past. Some famous political science books on this, actually fairly easy to read. I could put them in the show notes. They're, I mean, uh, they're, they're not boring. I mean, easy. They're, most academic stuff is awful uh, and it's not smart. Uh, so, but this is, you know, it's readable. Um, and the point of that literature is that in the past, you had great speeches, or a lot of times they weren't even given as speeches, great writings by presidents, right, in uh, the first century of the early American Republic. But Lincoln didn't make public speeches that much. I mean, the idea that the president had to come out every five seconds and make a speech is, was repugnant to them. One of the articles of impeachment for Andrew Johnson uh, after uh, Lincoln, that kind of was, you know, this is why he's a despicable guy, is because he was out there campaigning for himself. You weren't supposed to do that. It was beneath you. You didn't go out and campaign for yourself. Other people should go out and tell what a great guy you are uh, themselves. We all of a sudden now, why? Because of the rise of mass media, because you can, uh, because that ring was there and someone just had to pick it up and take it and start using the TV and radio. Uh, to influence people, we, we can't get these guys to shut up. I mean, even Biden, who has dementia, right, is, is constantly in the press talking about this and that. Why? I mean, if it's actually an executive position, uh, why do you why do you have to take all the time to give all these damn? I mean, you should not want to do that. You should be leading, right? Um, you know, my own my own self. I I I don't my per. <laughs> I do not want to be an influencer. I'm not an influencer. I'm doing a bunch of stuff and I will talk about it and I'll talk about what I'm doing. Uh, you know, people like it. I don't want to be a you know media figure. Like we don't want to make stars. Don't be a star. Um, but people have convinced me that I should not refrain from Twitter. I should be on the show. And I, I, I you know, I get it. there's a dual role now. It's a new age. I get it. But what I'm saying is the presidency itself, right? These positions of power changed over time because they used to rarely speak directly to the people. It was considered ignoble, dangerous, likely to lead to demagoguery. But as an industrial revolution picks up, uh, you know, you can speak to everyone. The ring is right there and you end up putting it on. Um, so, you know, take where you get 100 years later. I think Woodrow Wilson is the first guy to use video, though he doesn't really master it. Uh, and, uh, you know, FDR's fireside chats. I mean, the radio is huge for him. Um, the, you know, this, this use of technology just, just goes on and on and on until you get uh, Obama, who's just consulting directly with Hollywood moguls to craft his image and narrative after he left office, years before he left office. I mean, before he leaves office, right, he's talking to, I think it was Spielberg, other people like that, about his image and narrative, people who make the images and narrative for the entire world. 
he's talking about uh, talking with those people how to craft his own image and narrative, his story publicly years before he leaves office. Um, do you understand that that's how these things work? That this isn't just, you know, this isn't just like people doing stuff. Like they understand the power of, of the flickering images. They understand the power of the feed, even if they don't understand fully what it is. They're, they're using these things that are more powerful even than they can imagine in order to gain power against you. Um, and you're not even thinking about how they work, right? Most of us, because it, it's not even your fault. You haven't been taught. Uh, so, so anyway, now, uh, Ronald Reagan, um, known to the public, right, as a long time of the host of a popular television show, even after he was a recognized actor, um, similar to, of course, Trump uh, really crafting his image, which is already he'd perfected, but he really solidified it with the people when he did The Apprentice. Um, it's an incredible uh, match of character and reality show. Um, and, you know, Woodrow Wilson, first campaign advertisement using video in 1912. You look at all this. Our political leaders have increasingly used the ring, right? And they warped the presidency while driving the modern development of methods to influence the matting crowd. Um, once you have that technology out there, you just, you're not going to be, you know, I can keep these guys from using it. Um, so there you go. Um, but here's what's interesting. This technology, which constitutes the ring, uh, communications technology, it arose out of the uh, commercial republics of the Western world, uh, within which in normal conditions, there's kind of a veil that covers the profitable uh, relationship between those working within media corporations and the public figures they cover. And what's interesting about what the rise of a certain kind of digital technology did is it often happens when you change mediums change technological mediums, the veil comes off. So, um, so, so think about this. I mean, when it's public knowledge that those who work in the media oppose the views or actions of someone they unceasingly cover, and it's also clear to all that their coverage is helping rather than hurting that person, that veil is at least partially lifted. And that's what you saw in Trump's immediate wake when he won in 2016. Um, and he pointed it out all the time. He would just lift the veil. He'd be like, I'm making you guys money. And everyone's like, oh, wait, what's going on here? These are good liberals. I don't understand. Um, so and now that is partly, this is partly why, by the way, the journalists were driven mad by Trump. They couldn't stop promoting him because of what I'm about to tell you. And, uh, and they, they therefore like realized they had some blame just like Obama, right? I mean, this guy was, this guy's Obama's more involved in politics after he leaves office than anyone in our lifetimes. Uh, and he, he's doing that. Why? Because he feels like he has to rectify the situation, right? He can't be the guy who led to Donald Trump winning. And the media felt the same way. Uh, and that is partially why they just decided, you know, our entire mission is to destroy this man because like uh, moss to the flame, they could only help him during that incredible 2016 year. So let's go to the deeper uh, principle here. Um, how exactly does he, did he draw that kind of coverage and ratings? Um, I wanted to lay out some of that uh, today. And there's three different books I like to use because they're uh, they're they're nifty. Uh, they're kind of in that medium territory, and yeah, they all have some ups and downs, but they're but they really help you. One is Propaganda, 1928 by Edward Bernays, the Godfather of Public Relations. Um, 
The Image, 1962, I've already mentioned by Borston, and Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is the classic anti-TV book, 1985, uh, by Neil Postman. They all describe that he describes in there how entertainment masquerades as news in increasingly video-based mediums, um, and so you, if you look at just those three books, right, you could draw out some principles that seem roughly true about how um, media operates, and it's just it's sad that uh, we don't we don't have that. We don't educate. We don't. Uh, it's really it's really disgusting. Um. So let me uh, let me drill uh, down a little bit. Um, I will see here. Yes. Um, let's go to Melania Trump and the Republican National Convention back in the day. And it, it looked like in-house friend and employee had plagiarized two paragraphs of Boil, boilerplate from Michelle Obama and her professional speechwriters. And I made the point at the time, this hasn't changed, this didn't change the public opinion about Mr. and Mrs. Trump at all. Um, you know, plagiarism, if it's on purpose, it's wrong. But we live in an era where, I mean, plagiarism, Joe Biden is one of the worst offenders, where all kinds of figures are accused and convicted of plagiarism uh, with ever decreasing sentences. Um, American high school and college students sometimes have a hard grasp. Let me tell you, of grasping what plagiarism is, never mind why it's contemptible. And here's the thing. That's going to get worse. I mean, it's already worse. You won't even have them be able to write papers outside of being in class because the AI is already writing the papers for them. Uh, someone sent me once an, an AI. Uh, they asked the AI, is Matthew J. Peterson or Patrick Deneen right about the American founding? And it had said I was right. I don't know if they tweaked it, but it, but it was... I mean, Deneen's written a bunch of stuff. It, all it had read from me was probably my dissertation and a few articles. And it, it was, you know, uh, not that many paragraphs, but it was at least a B. Of course, I thought it was an A+. plus. said I was right. Uh, but it was unbelievable. Like, quoting from everyone. That, that technology already exists, so this will get even worse. In any case, why didn't the plagiarism charge have a significant effect on the Trumps? Um, you know, when it, in former years, it might have been a, ooh, a big deal. It, this reveals the, one of the reasons, uh, one of three central ones, but the only one I have time for today, about why Trump improbably won the media and became uh, the president of the United States. So in an era where you have increasingly vacuous political speeches, and I give a version of this to, to speechwriters, by the way, uh, a version of this talk, um, usually find it helpful, especially if they, they're younger and, and yeah, get it. Um, but... In an era where you have these vacuous speeches written by committees, they're tweaked by means of polls and focus groups and these lame consultants. They purposely nibble around the edge of substantial problems. This is what media became. This is why podcasting is so popular. People just getting into it. Um, the official language became, you know, about distracting side issues in politics. For instance, uh, you didn't want to talk about the real issues. No one wanted to talk about illegal immigration. Um, instead, you put out these dangly little baubles and, and distract people. And it all really lamely packaged within this creaky framework of outdated ideology. Charges of plagiarism, you lose their force, right? I mean, we don't choose politicians. Uh, we certainly don't choose their spouses based on the original, the originality or quality of their thought uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the corresponding originality and quality in their arrangement of words. Uh, we don't consider the actual substance of speeches so much as we criticize or glory in their effect. 
This is where media was at at the end of the TV era. And we all we we know all too well, albeit often uh, only vaguely, as to how exactly that political speeches are merely a part of, quote, a consistent, enduring effort to create or shape events to influence the relations of the public to an enterprise group or idea. Let me repeat that. Political speeches are merely a part of, quote, consistent, a consistent, enduring effort to create or shape events to influence the relations of the public to an enterprise group or idea. That is Edward Bernays, father of public relations, and, uh, you know, talking about what propaganda is, and that's the title of the book, um, 1928. And he said this was necessary. You know, it, you, you're always going to be trying to shape events to influence the relations of the public to an enterprise group or idea. That's what PR is. That's what propaganda is. And he was saying, look, propaganda is good, actually. It's just normal. In a world of mass media, you have to do it. So we live in the world created by what became really a cast of consultants like Bernays over the last century. And it wasn't just the consultant class or the PR guys, it was also people at the top understood some of these principles, which is why they were able to stay at the top. Uh, and you know, this, this still exists. These the people are working daily to harness the power of the evolving communications technology of the industrial revolution, now the digital revolution, which we sometimes call mass media, for the sake of businesses and politicians alike, that th these people help create the rules of the what used to be the normal news media game, attempting to sell ideas and politicians uh, with wildly de varying degrees of success, but by the same techniques that work to sell products. And so what, what delighted Trump supporters, what still delights Trump supporters is that he doesn't play that game according to what were the customary rules. There was no Karl Rove, no David Axelrod in his back rooms. He didn't have his guru, right, um, telling him what to do. It was him just doing his thing. He had Bannon, for sure, but that was more uh, on, the, on the political side. It, it wasn't like, um, you know, Trump, Trump didn't need to be told what to do in regard to the media. He just did what he did, and what he did worked until it didn't, um, until he, everyone turned on him. And even then, it's, it still works. They had to cut him off of Twitter, right? They had to cut him from his audience because it continued to work. Um, their solution was simply to drown him out, right? Eventually, they had to think about what, I, what this, whole, this whole monologue. They knew that they couldn't help themselves from promoting him. Their solution ultimately was, in fact, to cut him out. Right? They couldn't have him directly involved in the situation. They needed to ostracize him from the media landscape because he could drive. He could drive the news cycle. Uh, that was the biggest part about them kicking him out of Twitter. And now it's kind of indirect through through Truth Social. He'll get press from it still. Um, it is kind of working uh, in a similar way to Twitter uh, increasingly as, as Truth Social grows, but it's not the same, not the same influence uh, at all. Um, through that medium that he has now because they cut him off. So, uh, so you know, the, the, uh, the consultants that you used to have before Trump, it was all, this is why they hate him, it was all, you know, accepted rhetorical stratagems and uh, data-driven techniques. Um, and, um, you know, this is, this, this is the people who are still telling you they know what they're talking about, um, sort of roves and others of the world. So, so Trump, not only did he eschew all those people, he didn't, he didn't want any of that. He also didn't um, deal, he didn't have carefully vetted texts. He didn't have meticulously scripted moments 
wasn't a lover of precise policy prescriptions, had no heavily managed public image. Unlike uh, you know his uh, opponent at the time, who rarely holds press conferences and has carefully reinvented and reintroduced herself to the republic to the, with with consultants on several occasions. Right, Hillary Clinton had all kinds of people uh, working on her image uh, over and over again. She had reboots. Um, Trump was the opposite, right? He was speaking off the cuff and everything from speeches to tweets. This is essential to understand the moment we're in now and the new rules. Um, Trump supporters, uh, you know, love to proclaim that he's not afraid of the media, which is true. Uh, but in a very real sense, he is media. You know, he wasn't a policy wonk. He wasn't an order. wasn't an innovator or manager. His greatest accomplishments in some ways could be fire, filed under, I mean, he actually built things, so don't get me wrong, but they could be filed under public relations. Um, he's just an inarguably accomplished uh, master of media. And the one thing he's sold from the start successfully, uh, literally and figuratively, is his own name, I mean, his own name on the tower. So this is someone who, who intuitively grasps the, uh, the digital landscape with Twitter and is really the first Twitter president. They said that with Obama, but he just put out stock, you know, stock crap that no one remembers. Trump was the guy. And a friend of mine uh, pointed out that this may be because he wasn't a fish in water to the medium. He actually was from the radio age or listened to the radio a lot. He was old enough for that uh, growing up in New York. And that this, that, that outside the box got him someone out of TV and his own kind of strangeness, I think, got him out of TV. But he became the TV star as well. And then he gets on Twitter and it's, it's just fire. Um, so you go back to propaganda and um, it's interesting to think about, you know, what exactly is, is, is the principle here. Um, famously, he says, we're governed, our minds are molded, our tastes are formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. That's the logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. Those lines might justly anger or terrify you, but it's true as Abraham Lincoln said in his debate with Stephen Douglas, in a democracy, public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. Consequently, he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statues or pronounces decisions. He makes statues and decisions possible or impossible to be executed. There's the power of media. So how is it possible to mold a public sentiment and how ought one uh, to mold it? Now, uh, you know, Bernays wasn't running for office. Um, he he was he, he was really talking about more business, and his book is is him trying to sell himself with business. Bernays argues, um, you know, more generally that some sort of conscious and intelligent manipulation by those largely outside the public view and unknown to them is uh, merely the logical result of furnishing the order a democracy, a mass democracy, needs if it's to function well. And I don't think. You can just dismiss that as elitist nonsense. Uh, I think that is to remain in a comfortable world of democratic illusions. Um, so let's go again with what's troubling about this. Um, Bernays' claim. Uh, I'll reframe his understanding in accordance with my own as a principle that, if true, ought to profoundly alter your understanding of human organization in politics, business, and culture. As you increase the size of any group, A, and B, the equality of its members, uh, 
To the extent that that group seeks to communicate, organize, and govern itself, hierarchies of smaller groups and individuals will necessarily arise in proportion to the increased size and leveling. I can probably, I, I probably need to shorten that, right? But, uh, but, but I haven't, I haven't had time to like create the, the, the book of principles yet. We're doing too much. But as you increase the size of a group and the equality of its members, to the extent that that group seeks to communicate, organize, and govern itself, hierarchies of smaller groups and individuals necessarily arise in proportion to how big you get uh, and the leveling. So, okay, so this is true for what you might call a practical reason. It's difficult for large groups, even those with democratic intentions, to deliberate or communicate well without such hierarchical organization. And it's also true for what we might call deeper reasons. Um, it's far more than a mere organizational problem as increased size thins the interrelations and increased equality atomizes the members of the group. Either or both of these changes can cause a substantial change to the nature or structure of the community in, in question. Sounds complicated. It's not. Um, let's, uh, James Madison, Federalist 58, great principle to always keep with you. He says, in all legislative assemblies, the greater the number composing them may be, the fewer will be the men who will in fact direct their proceedings. Um, this is just a truism of life, business, politics, culture, and everything. So this means that in, in the House, 435 members of the House, they've organized themselves in a tightly aristocratic fashion, clear hierarchical procedures and structures, all leading up to a single ruler, the Speaker of the House, whereas the operations and culture of the 100 members in the United States Senate, who all think they can be president, is much more open and democratic by comparison. You see? So the principle is you got a group that's equal. It's kind of sort of like equalized in some way. The larger it is, the more you're going to need hierarchy in order to get things done. It's going to arise by necessity. So the underlying paradox that the authors of the Constitution acknowledge is that if the people have too many representatives, you will become less democratic. You see the problem. If the people have too many representatives, democratic procedures and rule diminish. It's not merely a practical organizational problem. Too large a group of equals will change the very character of the government tending towards an opaque oligarchy. You ever seen the Star Wars movies, uh, the, the, the new ones, as the old man in me calls them, uh, the prequels, the Senate in the Star Wars, each pod represents an entire planet, right? You see the problem in that enormous sci-fi room. The more democratic you are, the more people you are, and the more you have a mass that's trying to be an assembly, the more you're going to naturally you know, push a hierarchy will emerge, ultimately maybe an emperor. Um, so Madison says this, and this applies, again, it's principle from politics, but applies, if you're smart and you think about it, to many other things. And a lot of people don't uh, drill this down. You internalize this, you can, make, you can make money off of it. The people can never err more than in supposing that by multiplying their representatives beyond a certain limit, they strengthen the barrier against the government of a few. The countenance of government may become more democratic, but the soul that animates it will be more oligarchic. The machine will be enlarged, but the fewer and often the more secret will be the springs by which its motions are directed. So you, you, uh, you multiply the representatives and all of a sudden, you know, it'll look democratic, but really it's an oligarchy. Really, it's an oligarchy. This internalizing this can help you avoid error that will that will you know practically save money. Also, can help think about how to how to build new things. So this principle doesn't just apply to the total number of representatives we choose, but also to how we choose each one of them. Um, and Bernays you know says this when he talks about national politics. In theory, 
Every citizen may vote for whom he pleases. Our Constitution does not envision political parties as part of the mechanism of government. Framers didn't picture themselves, uh, you know, they didn't picture national parties. But the parties emerged because without organization and direction, their individual votes, cast perhaps for dozens of hundreds of candidates, would produce nothing but confusion, right? So invisible government, in the shape of rudimentary political parties, arose naturally, almost overnight. Ever since then, we've agreed that party machines should narrow down the choice to two candidates or at most three or four. And the same thing applies to how you see them with, uh, with media. Um, in the midst of this madness, you can't just see everything all at once. It's not the way it works. You need an organizing principle. And this is what's behind uh, the, the, the power of, of, of media. So, you know, many who oppose Trump say the reason the Republican Party failed to present the rise of him is because they allowed too many candidates to run in the primary for too long. Remember that argument. People are still... Uh, have, haven't forgotten it. And that same principle is also why initi initiatives and referenda in which large groups of voters acting as millions of individual legislatures vote directly on matters of complicated policy, those things are supposed to be democratic. Like in California, you have a proposition on the ballot, democracies at work, everyone just votes. The hilarious part is, the paradox is, that those the large mass vote allows elite interests to masquerade in the guise of the public interest and pass laws without ease. You have enough money, uh, you frame it the right way, you can get it passed across the people. There's not any deliberation about it, really. There's less deliberation than there usually would be in a legislature oftentimes. So you're still scratching your head. You're still not convinced. Um, let me say this. Consider technology uh, of communication itself. Um, you know, since the founding, we always say we're going to use technology to make ourselves more equal. It's how you sell things in America. But, you know, like Lucy to Charlie Brown's football, we were always surprised when hierarchy in a form of aristocracy and oligarchy inevitably emerge with a vengeance from the mass leveling that such technologies initially bring about. And YouTube is the best example. Everyone is atomized. Everyone can, I've mentioned this before on the, on the show, everyone can record videos online, unheard of, this power. Everyone can basically do it. But one website becomes naturally the centralized dominant player without competition. And YouTube was you know, gouging people for 45%. I mean, so, so I mean, I, Rumble is the competitor uh, to, to watch. We need competitors. Um, but it's no surprise that you're going to have only a few places where all the video is uh, because of this, this problem, this principle, I mean, that I'm, that I'm putting forward. So it shouldn't surprise us that, you know, increasingly cheaper modes of production of entertainment led, led the major studios to strengthen their, strengthen their stranglehold on the pipeline to theaters, turned to high-budget four-quadrant blockbusters uh, with sequel and spin-off potential that no one else could afford to make. That was the natural uh, progression. More people should be able to make movies more cheaply now. Uh, but, so what did they do? What, what ended up naturally happening? Uh, sort of, you know, they, 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 they relied on the temples. Of course, all those now suck too. Um, so so uh, this is, this is uh, Peter Thiel's one of his points in zero to one. Google doesn't want you to notice the fact that at its core, it's a vast monopoly. You're not supposed to notice that. For the most part, much of the world accesses its information now through a single search engine, which organizes the entire universe of the internet for each one of us individually, 10 entries at a time when you, when you search something. It's an enormous monopoly that's hiding uh, something else. Um, so yes, um, they may be replaced. They, they, there may be competition, but what I'm worried about is, is, is this. I want to, I'm going to put it this way. I want to challenge you to think through how exactly we think, govern, and choose for ourselves. 
both in terms of you know ideas and products and politicians and everything else. Uh, as Brene says, in theory, everyone buys the best and cheapest commodities offered him on the market. In practice, uh, you know, if everyone went around pricing and chemically testing before purchasing the dozens of soaps or fabrics or brands of bread which are for sale, economic life would be hopelessly jammed. To avoid such confusion, society consents to have its choice narrowed to ideas and objects brought to its attention through propaganda of all kinds. There is consequently a vast and continuous effort going on to capture our minds in the interest of some policy or commodity or idea. Okay, <clears throat> so fine, you might say, okay, he has a point. But we've already seen Mad Men, you know, marketing, advertising, and all that as part of selling products. They're always trying to manipulate us. But, uh, you know, it doesn't apply to policy and ideas, right? It doesn't apply to how we live our own private lives. What about ethics? Here's what he says. In theory, every citizen makes up his mind on public questions and matters of private conduct. In practice, if all men had to study for themselves the abstruse economic, political, and ethical data involved in every question, they would find it impossible to come to a conclusion about anything. We voluntarily agreed, Bernays says, to let an invisible government sift the data and high spot the outstanding issues so that our field of choice shall be narrowed to practical proportions. I mean, Socrates himself would at least partially agree, whether we're talking about justice or what the known results for a specific law or policy proposal might be, we generally depend on others to conduct the original research, as it were. Right? We don't thoroughly research every choice. We cannot usually fully do so, whatever that might mean. No one has the time, training, ability to research, think independently through every decision, idea, or way of life without getting help and taking cues from others. You know, truth be told, Generally speaking, human beings do not and cannot come to the truth about what's best for themselves all by themselves. If left alone on an island, you know, or in solitary confinement, we soon find ourselves fighting off insanity. And that's how you torture people. That shouldn't worry us, except what I'm combating in your head is, is, is this individualistic story that, that we're constantly being told and telling ourselves that we are determining all these things ourselves. Humility is needed in order to see clearly here how you're being influenced. Uh, so it's an uncomfortable truth. It's not what we want to think about ourselves, right? Um, so when you realize what you've been taking for granted, you become angry um, at those who've been assuring us that we, we're, we're independent, which is what advertisement often does. Uh, and you see how dangerous you know, your ignorance is. And this ignorance about, say, the paradox of large groups of equals itself can lead to dangerous results for democracy itself, as they say. Now, you destroy democracy this way. So even more importantly, um, you know, public sentiment will always be molded by hierarchical structures and organizations. Uh, it, it, this allows you to start thinking more intelligently about what kind of molding is good and bad. Uh, you know, in other words, how ought public sentiment be molded? Uh, that is a very important question. So in the midst of all this, let's just go back to, uh, to, to Trump. Um, Trump became the figure for an entire, uh, you know, an entire uh, really a, a political party of dissent that wasn't even uh, the, the party itself. Um, in the midst of this mass media madness, he was able to consistently drive the news cycle through pseudo events or you know, events that he kind of made events by him saying something that was just over the line, which, you know, then they write articles about, which he responds to. And so he's just, he's in the public face. They couldn't stop it. And ultimately they had to cut him off in, in order to, uh, 
to get rid of him. And he just he became this this centralizing figure that um, uh, that in the midst of what I would say the, the the atomized madness here, the large mass of people, those people were not served by the Republican Party. They rejected the Republican Party. That is why they chose Trump ultimately. And he was the unifying figure of them against the machine, against the man, against the Borg. And that is why uh, with the midterms, because he, you know, is kind of sort of running for office, but is not on the ballot. There was, if he could have nationalized the election in a way, but he wasn't on the ballot, it was hard for the Republicans to, you know, fully, fully win. He was, he is the centralizing uh, figure. And it's also why they had to cut him off. They had to get rid of him. There was no way around it, whether they consciously know anything that I'm just said, uh, this is what it leads, you know, these are the principles, the operating principles that led to them having to uh, disconnect him directly to the people because it was him direct to the people uh, that was the unifying force. He was the YouTube, right? Um, and, uh, in a weird, in a complicated way, like we're, it's uh, uh, I could I could go on this about this forever. Uh, there, there's so much uh, to say here, but he was the, he was the centralizing figure because the the party itself was not the organizing principle anymore. And uh, when it when it comes to media, there's just there's no way really to get rid of his his power if he's directly connected. Um, in any event, I hope uh, you know we just scratch the surface of, of, of some of this stuff as usual. Um, but I, I, if you find, I hope you find this stuff interesting. I think most people do. Um, and, um, you know, it's something that regardless of whether you uh, feel like it's old hat or it, this is like break blowing your mind, these are the kinds of things, right? They're, they're going to just help you think about how to evaluate what's around you. Never mind build new things moving forward. That is all the time I have for today, but I hope you have a great rest of your day. Cheers. All right, that's all the time we have for today. Of course, we took extra time today because it was so good, so good, so interesting. I could go on, but I won't. You have to like and review if you like this one. Uh, you have to contact me if you want to be involved in uh, in uh, the, the media project. And you can do that uh, through Twitter at DOCMJP, or you can go to newfounding.com. And uh, poke around there and uh, send an email and uh, they'll, they'll pass it along to me. Uh, I also want to mention our talent network, newfounding.com slash talent. Uh, mentioned this on, on Glenn Beck the other day. Uh, it's great to be neighbors with the Blaze here uh, in, in Dallas, Texas. But I, I really, I mean, people are, are signing on. If you are one of those people in a weird position where it just feels like, I'm in a, you know, uh, this kind of perch or I have expertise that's specialized or in this high level situation, you're trying to get out, you're trying to make that match, or you're trying to hire someone um, of exceptional talent who can really move the ball forward, uh, you know, use newfounding.com slash talent. That's just the beginning, but we're, we're spending some time and energy on this. We're here to help you uh, consider becoming a member of newfounding.com. We're going to be rolling out um, super elite chat groups. No, just kidding. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna roll out some ways for people to uh, to communicate increasingly in different sectors as we go at, at the hub of this uh, commercial cultural thing that's rolling on. Lots of good energy, regardless of what's happening in national politics. Uh, you know, screw that. We're just we're just building here at New Founding. So thanks for thanks for listening, and uh, you have a great day. You need to stay uh, stay limber because we uh, we need you that way. <laughs>